السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Can someone just give me a mic check please Inshallah make sure you can hear me okay بارك الله فيك جزاك الله خير بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين ما بعد so welcome to another session with qp and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to inshallah conclude our tafsir of surah al-shahr and last week we covered uh, the fourth fifth and sixth verses inshallah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in the fourth verse, he continues to praise our Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and to mention some of the blessings that he bestowed upon him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And from them was, or the one that we covered last week, which was the third of the of the three that Allah azza wa jalla mentions in those first four verses, was the statement of Allah subhanahu wa taala, "Warafagna laka dhikrak," and indeed we have raised for you your mention. And we mentioned last week the different uh, statements of the scholars of tafsir concerning the meaning of that. How did Allah raise the mention of the Prophet And we mentioned the different uh, statements that you had. Some of them said it's to do with the shahadatain. When we say la ilaha illallah, we also say Muhammad rasulullah Another said that in the adhan and in the khutbatul hajjah that, that for example the imam gives or says at the beginning of his sermons and his khutbahs on Friday, or the iqamah of the salah, those types of things that the name of Allah Azza wa is always mentioned first, and the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is also mentioned, likewise in tashahud, in salah. And so that's one of the ways that Allah Azza wa raises the mention of the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And as I think we, we mentioned also in passing last week, that that's one of those uh, ways in which Allah Azza did raise the name of the Prophet which is in the literal sense be that by the examples that were given in those statements or be that by other examples the fact that the name Muhammad especially when we say it as it refers to the Prophet is a name that is honorable and it is a name that is favored and it's a name that stretches across Muslim communities across the world so for example often you will find that people in their different regions and in their different cultures, will have names that are specific to them that you don't really find in other places. If you go to certain countries in the Middle East, they have certain names that you won't really find in the Indian subcontinent. And the people in the Indian subcontinent may have certain names that you won't find in Malaysia, Indonesia. And the Muslims of Malaysia and Indonesia have names that are specific to them that you won't find in other regions. But there are some names that, that as we know, you know, uh, they traverse or they 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 spread across and they and they go across all of those divides and from them is the name of our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and obviously there are other names as well but the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is from amongst them to the extent that it is not uncommon in certain cultures that you will have the name Muhammad affixed to the beginning of a name of every child, a male child because just for that kind of thing that it's the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and that's very common amongst some communities in the Indian subcontinent that you will find that the first name of every male child is Muhammad. And that first name isn't used. It's like kind of like the family name, but it's not used because everyone's Muhammad. It becomes you know, confusing right after a while calling everyone Muhammad. But that's very common. And I found the same in some communities in North Africa, in Morocco and other places, that they would often do the same as well, that they would just call one of their male children, they start with Muhammad. And then the actual name is Abdul Rahman or Abdul Hay or, or something else that it may be. But the point is that Muhammad is always there. That is one of the ways that the name of the Prophet ﷺ is raised. 
and that is a physical rising as we know. The second way that, that the scholars of tafsir mentioned is in the, uh, if you like, the spiritual or the metaphorical way, and that is that it is uh, that it is our heart, in our heart, the way that we revere and respect and honor the Prophet And that is also a way that the name of the Prophet or his mention has been raised high by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The love that we have, even the least practicing Muslim, will have a love for Allah and a love for the Quran and a love for the Prophet They have that muscle of Iman within them, even though they may not pray or give zakat or do anything else, but the name and the person of the Prophet is something that is respected and revered by them. And that is also one of those ways that Allah has raised his mention. Then in verses 5 and 6, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats a principle. And that is, Indeed, with difficulty comes ease. Indeed, with the difficulty comes ease. And we mentioned the statements of the scholars of tafsir as to uh, what that means and what it refers to and so on. Where we concluded then last week was on a particular point of Arabic grammar, uh, but also as it pertains to the principle of this repetition in the Qur'an, when you find this type of repetition in the Qur'an. And that is that when you have a verse like verses 5 and 6 that are repeated, repeated in this way, then is the repetition for, for example, just simply to clarify or to not clarify, but rather to confirm and to affirm something? Or is there a difference between verses 4 and 5, uh, verses 5 and 6 rather in repetition? Meaning, when Allah says, يُسْرَى, Indeed, with the difficulty there comes ease. And then Allah repeats the same thing in verse 6. Is it the same difficulty and ease that Allah is referring to? Or is it two different difficulties and eases that Allah is referring to? Or is it the same difficulty but different eases that Allah is referring to? So those are three scenarios that we have. Either each one is the same, both are the same, or both are different, or one is the same and one is different. Right? Those are the three scenarios that we have. And this comes back to a principle that you will find in the books of Tafsir, but also in the books of Arabic grammar. And that is what is known as I'adat al-Nakira. If something which is a general term, it's not specified, is repeated twice, does it refer to the same thing or something different? And if something which is ma'rifa, which is defined by the al, it is the, it is specific, specified, and it is repeated twice, is that something which then, uh, which then refers to the same thing or something different, uh, something different? So, for example, in verses five and six, when you look at the Arabic, you will find that in both verses five and six, the word usr, which means difficulty or hardship, is defined. There is an al in front of it. فَإِنَّ مَعَ usri. And then in verse 6, usri, That alif lam defines the usr. It is a specific difficulty. Now that specific difficulty is different from every person, right? So for example, you know, it may be the death of someone. It may be poverty. It may be sickness. It may be different things. But it is defined. It is specified. And then when Allah mentions the ease, it is mentioned generically. There's no definition. There's no specification of the al. Rather, it is generic. فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى Not الْيُسْرِ يُسْرَى And then in verse 6, إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى Again. Right? And this is what the Qa'idah is speaking about. And that is because uh, some of the scholars mention this. Right? 
And there is a difference of opinion. So you have one position of scholars who said that it is simply for uh, tawkid. The repetition is simply for emphasis. That's all it is. Emphasizing the same thing twice. And that was uh, the position chosen by some of the scholars of tafsir, uh, most famous from amongst them perhaps, or lately, Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, this is the position that he takes. Whereas others said no. They said that actually it's two different ones. The repetition here is for differences in the ease, not in the difficulty. Because the difficulty is defined twice, it's the same difficulty. But because the ease is left generic both times, each one of those eases is different. Right? And that's what we mentioned last week about that hadith, even though there is a difference of opinion over its uh, authenticity as a hadith of the Prophet wasallam. But others mentioned it as a statement of some of the companions. And that is that, that ease... Two, uh, one difficulty can never overcome two eases right? and we mentioned that narration last week and this was the position chosen by a number of the scholars with tafsir including Ibn al-Qayyim that actually is two different things but both of the issues or whichever position you take really comes back down to this qa'idah this principle in tafsir and in Arabic language and that principle is basically if you have repetition this is the qa'idah that they are using those scholars who say that it is a different meaning they go back to this qa'idah that is mentioned in the books of tafsir and, and by others in, in the books of Arabic language and so on. And that is that if you have a spe- specified word, a word that is specified with the al, or in some other way it is specified, then its repetition means that you're still referring to the same thing. Yeah. So for example, جَاءَ الرَّجُلُ فَأَكْرَمْتُ الرَّجُلَ وَأَجْلَسْتُ الرَّجُلَ Like the man came, so I welcomed the man and I made him sit down and I fed him. Who are you referring to? Who is the man? Is it a different man or the same man? It's the same man. You're still referring to the same person, right? And maybe you don't know his name, right? So you're still referring to the same person because each time it's the same definition. The second part of the qa'idah is, but if it is a generic thing, if it's generic, then no. Each one now is different in Arabic language. جَاءَ رَجُلٌ أَكْرَمْتُ رَجُلًا a man came, I welcomed a man. Not necessarily the same one. It could be one man came, and then you welcomed someone else who was already there. right? And that's how it's basically working. And this is the qa'idah that a number of the scholars of tafsir uh, mentioned, as well as, uh, it's not just the qa'idah of tafsir, but in Arabic language anyway. So from amongst those scholars who, who accepted this as being a valid principle, because this is where the difference of opinion comes, whether this principle is actually an accurate principle in using it in the Arabic language and in the Qur'an or not. Right, so some of the scholars who said that it is an accurate principle to be used from amongst them is an Imam al-Tahawi rahimahullah ta'ala in his book Sharh Mushkil al-Athar and al-Samin al-Halabi has a book called al-Durr al-Masun and al-Samin al-Halabi is from the scholars of Arabic language and tafsir from the 8th century rahimahullah ta'ala he also mentioned this right? so for example he says if you say um, if, if you have the word that is defined both times it is referring to the same thing but if the word is undefined both times, then each time the meaning is different. So the example of this being in the Qur'an, and in the Qur'an actually the other part of this principle is that if at the beginning or the first time the word is left unspecified, but the second time it is specified, so the first time is general, and the second time it is specified, then it's also referring to the same thing. So for example you say, جَاءَ رَجُلٌ فَأَكْرَمْتُ الرَّجُلَ the man came, so I welcomed the man. Or, or, or a man came, so I welcomed the man. 
now it's referring to the same one because now you specified after making it generic because the first time the man comes is any man that could have possibly come in but now that you're saying that and I then welcome the man you're still referring to the same man this is the principle and it's based upon or they have they give another a number of examples from this in the Quran from amongst them is a statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Muzammil when Allah Azza wa says كَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا إِلَىٰ فِرْعَوْنَ رَسُولًا فَعَصَى فِرْعَوْنُ الرَّسُولًا right? And if you ever read this, uh, these verses, or you read these verses, you come across them in Surah Al-Muzammil, you've probably noticed this difference and wondered why it is there. Allah Azza wa says, just as we sent to Pharaoh a prophet, a messenger. So then Pharaoh disobeyed the messenger. So the first time a messenger and Allah doesn't specify, but the second time Allah says in the following verse, and Pharaoh disobeyed, rejected the messenger. And so the scholars say it's referring to the same one, obviously being the Prophet Musa So Musa came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh rejected Musa. Right? That is the meaning. But Allah mentions it in the first way that we sent to him Musa right? And perhaps one of the reasons for that and Allah knows best is because when Musa comes, he comes and he doesn't know what he's going to bring. The message is not defined. The conveyance of the message has not yet been completed. But once Musa has conveyed the message and called him to Allah, now he knows not only the person, but he knows the message that he brings as well. And so Allah defines this. Similar example to this is in Surah Fatiha. So this is an example of where it's defined in both occasions. Allah says, guide us to the straight path the path of those that you have favored. So both times it's defined. The first time it is the straight path. The second time it is defined by description. By Allah giving it an attribute and a characteristic. That it's not just any path, but the path that Allah has favored. Right? The path of those upon whom Allah has shown his favor. The second example though, or the second part of the qaid examples from the Quran, that if there is a generic word and a repetition of the generic word then it is not the same there is a difference between them it is for example in the verse in surah al-saba in surah saba and that is the statement of allah azza wa jal wali sulaiman al-riha ghuduwuha shahr wa rawahuha shahr and for sulaiman alayhi salam we subjected the wind right he could command the wind its outward journey would be a month its inward journey would be a month and that is the statement of Allah Azza So is the month the same on the outward journey and the inward journey? No, clearly the outward journey is one month, the inward journey is a different month, right? It's another month. And so therefore Allah Azza says it both though in generic form. Wuduwuha shahar, a month. Warawahuha and its return is a month, shahar. And you don't have the al. Another example of this and you know the more famous one is the one that we mentioned in Surah Ash-Sharh. So what these scholars are basically saying is that in the Quran, you have three types of repetition that come very close to one another in terms of words. The first is or nouns. The first of them is where both are defined. If both are defined, then they are speaking about one and the same thing. The second type is where the first time round it is not defined, it is generic, but the second time round it is defined, it is specific. Therefore, it is speaking about one and the same thing again. The third time or the third instance is where both times it is generic, not specified. In which case, each time it is referring to something different. Right? That is basically what these scholars are saying. So why didn't other scholars accept this? 
because they said that actually it's not the case that everywhere in the Quran that that principle works. So from amongst those scholars who said this was Ibn Hisham. He has a book called Mughni al-Labib. Ibn Hisham disputed this qaida as being a qaida and a principle that works throughout the Quran. And the example or from the examples that he gave in the Quran, and I know that this is a slightly uh, technical point and we're maybe going into, uh, into a slight digress, uh, digression here, but I think it's an important principle to understand because this is a common thing in the Quran. You will find this commonly in the Quran. And so to understand this, inshallah ta'ala will help you to at least understand why there is a difference of opinion at times amongst the scholars of tafsir. The example given uh, where this doesn't work, so this principle that we just explained doesn't work, is for example in the verse in Surah Al-Rum, verse 54. Allah Azza wa Jalla says, Allahu alladhi khalaqakum min da'afin. Allah created you from weakness. And the word da'af is left general. ثُمَّ جَعَلَ مِنْ بَعْضِ ضَعْفٍ And then we gave to you, after that weakness, strength. And both the words da'af and quwa are again generic. Then Allah says, ثُمَّ جَعَلَ مِنْ بَعْضِ قُوَّةٍ ضَعْفًا وَشَيْبًا And then we gave you, after that strength, weakness. Right? So what these scholars are saying is, the strength and the weakness here even though it is repeated in the generic form are referring to the same individual it's the same person you start off weak then you go to strength then you go to weakness right and that's basically what the issue is right that's the base basically what the issue is that actually it doesn't work in this verse for example because it's the same person and he's going through it's not different people but perhaps what Allah Azza wa knows best is that the reply to this from amongst those scholars who said that it does work as a principle is that they said that the weaknesses in the verse, even though they are referring to the same, same individual, are different weaknesses. The weakness of childhood is different to the weakness of old age. And the strength of, uh, of a young person is different to the strength that comes for example, to a person who is an adult, right? And so each time it is a different type of strength and weakness, even though it is referring to the same individual. However, a more clear example in the Quran of what they're speaking about, those people that, that uh, oppose this principle or they have an issue with it, is uh, a better and clearer example of them showing that it doesn't work, is the verse in Surah Al-Zukhruf, towards the very end, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَهُوَ الَّذِي فِي السَّمَاءِ إِلَاهِ وَفِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَاهِ he is the one who is God in the heavens, God in the earth. And the word God, ilah, both times is mentioned as a generic word. And so that's a better example because clearly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the God of both, even though they are mentioned in the generic word. So what? how did Ibn Hisham, for example, uh, come over this? He said that actually the principle that is mentioned by those scholars of the repetition, whether it's defined or not defined and so on, he said it is generally speaking a good, uh, a good principle, meaning that most times it works. But it doesn't work every time. So how did he go, uh, you know, go around it? He used the same principle, but he added a very important caveat or condition at the end. And he said, unless, so that principle works. If it's defined both times, it's referring to the same thing. If it's generic both times, it's referring to two different things, unless there is something else in the verse to show that it's referring to the same thing. Unless there is a qarina. There's some kind of evidence. There's something to hint. There's some context. There's something there that shows us actually that in this case, it's an exception to that rule. Like the verse in Surah Zukhruf, because clearly when he's speaking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his, his oneness, then clearly it is speaking about Allah Azza wa Jal himself. Both times are not two different gods because that would obviously be shirk. And so that's something which he refers to. And that is, I think, a good 
principle to use with his caveat and his condition because then you come out of some of those issues that those scholars had in terms of this principle. So therefore, when we now come to uh, back to this surah, Surah Al-Sharh, uh, and we have this statement of, um, you know, of, of those scholars who said that it's for emphasis, Right? And those scholars who said that it is for emphasis like Ibn Ashul and so on, this is, I think, one of the issues that they had. They didn't find that principle to be a principle that worked in every single place. And so they said that it's better, therefore, to say that it is for emphasis. Whereas other scholars like Ibn Al-Qayyim and others, they not only accepted this as a principle, but they said that also actually there's, there's a text that even though there is a problem with its chain of narration and its authenticity as the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, it seems to be an accepted statement amongst the companions. So therefore, it is on that basis also that this principle is strengthened. Because the hadith or that narration from the companions that two eases will always overcome one difficulty gives strength to the tafsir of the verses being that yusr and ease in both verses is two different eases. Because the hadith or that narration, that statement of the companions seems to explain it in that way as well. And Allah Azza wa knows best. And then they d- uh, differed you know, amongst themselves as to what those two eases are. So when it comes to, for example, the Prophet wasallam, if that's what it's referring to, because the surah primarily speaks about the blessings that were ble- bestowed upon the Prophet wasallam, then some of them said, for example, that the first of those eases is the conquest that Allah gave to the Prophet wasallam, the battles that he, the, the victories that he won in battle. And the second is the ease that is khulafa, that is successors Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiyallahu anhum ajma'een had during their times of expansion of the Muslim uh, the Muslim empire, right? the expansion of the Muslim empire. The other scholars said, if you want to make it more generic, we're not speaking about the Prophet then the first type of ease is the ease that Allah gives to people in the dunya, and the second type of ease is the ease that Allah will give to the believers on Yawm Al-Qiyamah in the next life. Right? And others from amongst them said that the first ease is the ability to be able to fight against your own desires and to fight against your own whisperings of shaitan. And the second ease is Allah's assistance and his divine help in doing so. But these are just examples of what the verse means. They are not meant to be in any way uh, comprehensive or they're not meant to be in any way restrictive to what the meaning of the verse is. What Allah is saying is that when you have a difficulty, then there are two ways that Allah will help you. There will be, and some of the scholars even said, inherent within that difficulty there is ease. That's the first way. And the second way is that Allah gives you a way out, right? It actually helps you to solve that problem. But even within it, there is ease. The ease that is inherent is that if it, for example, brings you closer to Allah, as it should do for the believer. And clearly this is all in the scope of Iman for the believer. This is in the context of the believer, not for the disbeliever. So for the believer, even in times of difficulty, it reminds them of Allah. It prompts them to repent to Allah. It prompts them to show thankfulness to Allah Azza wa Jalla. It prompts them to remember Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. All of those things are from the inherent ease found within that difficulty. And then there is a second ease that Allah Azza wa Jalla brings. The point of this being that whenever there is an issue that we face, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala will always help us, and Allah Azza wa Jalla will always. Give us that extra help that we need, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does so in ways that we can understand. Be that in this world, both of them, or be that one in this world and one in the next world, as some of the scholars of tafsir said, or be that both of them in the next world, and Allah azza wa jal knows best. But either way, for the believer, they know that they have that double reward and that double type of ease. In terms of, um, and, so, and so that's the, the, the principle that I wanted to mention to you last week. 
uh, concerning those verses 5 and 6. We then come on to verse number 7. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 7, He says, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ In fact, before we begin verse number 7, before I forget, inshallah, uh, let me just remind everyone that inshallah next Monday we're beginning our reading of the poem as Zamzamiya, right? The poem in uh, Quranic sciences and Usul al Tafsir, which is the poem of Al Imam al Zamzami, known as Mandumatu Zamzamiya. And those of you that are on the group, then inshallah you know that you're on that group and you, you're kind of getting the messages anyway on the Telegram group. And for those of you that aren't and are interested, then uh, you can see in the chat now a link for that registration form. The registration form is important. If you want the written ijazah, if you want the written ijazah, you need to register. If you're not so fussed about the written ijazah, you're happy with the verbal one, or you're happy, for example, to uh, simply just watch the YouTube recording uh, or the YouTube live stream, whatever it may be, then it's not really a big issue. But if you want the written ijazah, then you need to register uh, so that we have a record of your name and so on. Um, and I think if there's any questions that anyone specifically has, then you can answer them. But just to give you, uh, you know, just I want to explain this issue of what the ijazah is because I think that there is some uh, miscommunication, maybe misunderstanding, maybe people don't really know what it is and so on. There's a difference between ijazahs that you get in the Quran and general ijazahs that you get in the books of hadith and the books of knowledge. The ijazah in the Quran is of a slightly different level and it's slightly more, uh, it's sli- it, is, it is not slightly more, it is stricter. And that's because you will generally read the whole of the Quran from beginning to end to a teacher who will verify your hifth and your tajweed and then they will give to you an ijazah and that means that you have the ability not only to, that you read in a certain way but that you have the ability to teach in the way that you read to others you can teach them the ijazahs that you get in the books of knowledge and in the books of hadith and in the poems for example that we're doing and so on these are not ijazahs to teach ijazah simply means in this context an ijazah to say that i heard from my teacher this book with his explanation, if he gave an explanation, sometimes there's no explanation, it is simply a reading. And sometimes it is a light commentary or whatever it may be that I heard that book in that way. And it's simply to give you a chain of narration back to the author of that work, be that one of the scholars of hadith in the collections of hadith, or a scholar of tafsir in his book of tafsir, or a scholar of aqidah in, in his books of aqidah, and so on and so forth. And in our case, to al-imam al-zimzami rahimahullah ta'ala in his poem of al-zimzamiyya. That's all it is. So it's not a... It's not a qualification, it's not permission to teach, doesn't mean that you've mastered the subject or anything like that. It is simply something which is uh, done out of sharaf, right? In our time, the most important thing clearly is to understand what it is. This is like the icing on the cake, it's like something which you which you get. And there are people who have tons and tons of ijazas, but there are some of them who, if you were to sit them down, wouldn't understand the first thing about what they read, or wouldn't understand the first thing about the basics of tafsir or hadith or whatever but they've been able to collect them because they simply attended readings or they read themselves that's something which isn't a good methodology of studying and seeking knowledge the methodology of seeking knowledge number one is always firstly to understand and to learn and then secondly to alhamdulillah to take these ijazas and so on and it's all and so it's something which is uh, you know which is which is okay number two the second point and, and I, maybe i will mention this inshallah on monday again but just very quickly for for those of you that are here and that will listen to this uh, the second point regarding that is that there are two types of ijazah. One is written and one is verbal. And the general way that this works is that the written ijazah is given to those people that attend live with the sheikh. They're there, present in front of him. He sees them, they see him or her. And they interact and he can see them and he can see that they're paying attention and listening attentively and so on. And so he, they give the written ijazah. For everyone else that's attending live 
online or you know like a live stream or whatever it may be then they would have a verbal ijazah and that's the asl in the time of the companions and so on when they're narrating hadith to one another they're not writing it down it's a verbal transmission the scholars of quran when uh, the companions are teaching their students and the tabi'in are teaching their students they're not writing things to that this is later on that the writing of ijazahs became common it's a verbal transmission and our religion is based on verbal transmission whether in the narrations of hadith or the narrations of quran the study of quran it is always a verbal transmission so if you have that verbal transmission then clearly it's something which is enough but the problem obviously arises where but unfortunately we don't have people that are honest that don't have integrity that you can't trust that you don't know and so therefore when one of them comes and says you know i read such and such with sheikh so and so and this is you know he gave me an ijazah maybe he did maybe he didn't you maybe you were there maybe you weren't there and that's where the problem arises so scholars started to write things down just as the scholars of hadith started to collate the books of hadith for that very reason likewise scholars started to write down ijazas also for a similar reason and so that's basically what the step is in our time because of primarily covid and, and it's not possible for me even to do any class live let alone a reading like this but also because many of our students are online I've given them the option of getting the written ijazah. But for that written ijazah, you will have to go through a process. That process will require you, number one, to register. Number two, after every session, to fill in a form. Or I think it's every session. But anyway, you will have to verify in some way and you'll be given those details. I don't want to say something incorrect just in case I, I misspeak. But the point is that you will be given a form to fill in or to attest that you attended each session live and that not only did you attend it live, but you listened to it attentively from beginning to end. If you didn't, for whatever reason, you missed a bit or something happened or maybe the stream that went down where you were or whatever, then you take the verbal ijazah. And that's enough for you. And, and that's, like I said, the general rule and basis upon which this is done. And many of, of you know my ijazahs and the ijazahs that you will find from your teachers are verbal ijazahs. Because not every sheikh has the time to write down, if he's a thousand students, he's writing down everything for everyone. Right? That's not the way that, that, that the scholars don't have time for that. So that's the general thing right, that you will have. So uh, that's a verbal ijazah. But if you can verify that you listen to each one live and you were there from beginning to end, then inshallah we will give you a written form of that ijazah. And that written form has yet to be determined in the sense that I don't know exactly what form that will take. I will give you the full isnad in the written form, uh, inshallah ta'ala. And uh, for those of you that haven't, then maybe in the final session, I will ask the brother who's doing the reading to uh, read it out as also, at least to have the verbal in the verbal transmission, you know how that ijazah goes back to the author. So if there's any questions regarding that, then inshallah you can, you can post them and I will try to deal with them at the end. But inshallah today we want to finish the tafsir of Surah Al-Shah. So in verse number seven, Allah Azza wa then says, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ and there's a number of different translations that I found for this verse. Uh, Professor Abdul Hanim says, The moment you are freed of one task, work on. Mufti Taqi says, So when you are free from collective services, toil hard in worship. Muhsin Khan, So when you have finished from your occupation, then stand up for Allah's worship, meaning for prayer. And Sahih International, So when you have finished your duties, then stand up for worship. And the reason why you have slightly different uh, tafsirs there is because there is a slight because the verse says that when you are free, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ When you are free. But Allah Azza wa doesn't specify free from what? What is it that you are free from, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa And then Allah says, فَانْصَبْ right? And he doesn't describe, Allah Azza wa says, toil, work hard, tire yourself. But Allah Azza wa doesn't mention in what? How do you toil? What do you work hard in? 
The word nasab in the Arabic language, or the word faragh before that, this, the second word in the verse, faragh means to be free from something, to have completed something, to be free, to have space and time. And the word fansab at the end of that verse, its asl means to be tired from working. So it's as if Allah says that when you have now freed yourself from something, then work hard in our worship. Right? And that's a very uh, interesting command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because Allah is telling the Prophet from the beginning of the surah the way that Allah has blessed him and the way that Allah has favored him and the many graces and favors that he has bestowed upon him. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him that principle in verses 5 and 6 that we just covered of ease and, and, and difficulty. And then Allah tells him what to do in terms of continuing to earn that. And that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so when you have finished, then continue to work. Um, Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala, and so what the scholars did is they gave examples of what, what it means. Examples in the sense that it's not, it's not comprehensive. An example of what the Prophet would have finished and then what he would do in terms of working hard in ibadah. So Qatada said, for example, so when you have finished from your prayer, then continue to make dua. Uh, Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala said, or he, he narrates the, the statement of Mujahid rahimahullah, that the word fansab is, then turn to your Lord, expressing your needs to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, Imam al-Sha'bi said, when you have finished from conveying the message, then toil hard in seeking forgiveness for yourself and for the believing men and the believing women. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, and I will summarize this at the end in perhaps clearer words, but Imam al-Tabari said that some of the scholars said that the meaning is that when you finish from salah, then go into dua. When you finish from salah, then go into making dua. And he mentioned this as being the statement of Ibn Abbas and Mujahid and Al-Dahaq and Qatada, rahimahumullahu ta'ala. And he mentioned the different statements of them in his in his tafsir. Some of them said that you make dua, literally. Others said that you ask Allah for your needs, which is again a type of making dua. And others said that you express your need and poverty before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And others from amongst them even said that it's in the salah, meaning that this is one of those verses that speaks about the importance of making dua before the salam. As we know, the Prophet ﷺ told us that in the final tashahud, at the very end, after you've sent salat and salam upon the Prophet ﷺ, it is a time for dua, right? It is a time for dua. And that's why you have generally in those uh, hadith, scholars who interpreted that, that to mean the end of salah being, meaning the ending before salah meaning the period of the shahud, the very end of the shahud, before you make the salam. So the end of salah, meaning before you make the salam. That is the end of salah. Another said, no, end of salah actually means once you finish from salah. right? And similar to that is the famous dua that we know, Allahumma inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik. Right? When is that dua made? Some of the scholars said, because the Prophet said in the hadith, at the end of salah. Does that mean at the very end of your salah whilst you're in salah? Or the end of salah as in after you finish the salah, right? And the Arabic wording allows for both, allows for both. And so therefore, some scholars said one and some scholars said the other. And that's why you have, for example, some scholars will say to you that it is sunnah, it is a good time to make dua after you finish salah and you made your adhkar, it's a good time to make dua. And others will say to you, no, actually in salah is better because that's when you're facing Allah Azza wa Jal and you're in that act of worship and the salah has its own status and its own virtues as we know. Right? And both of those you will find, and this is similar to it. So you find, for example, uh, from amongst the scholars of the Haq who said that it's referring to dua before you make the salam. After you finished your salah, 
make dua meaning whilst you're in salah after you've finished meaning you finished all of your salah and the duas that are obligatory upon you and wajib and so on that you've read them all and now you're at the very end of salah now you make your duas before you make the taslim and Allah Azza wa knows best another uh, opinion that, that was mentioned by um, Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is that when you have finished from fighting your enemies then turn to your Lord in worship so once you've finished, then turn to your Lord in worship. Once you've finished fighting, then continue in your worship of your Lord. Right? And this he mentioned as being the statement of Al-Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah ta'ala, and the statement of Ibn Zayd. The statement of Ibn Zayd from amongst the scholars of Tafsir also. And again, as we said, these are examples of what is being referred to. Not They are not meant to be restrictive in any way. So no, none of these scholars are saying that this is the only Tafsir of this verse. As we said, a common uh, methodology amongst the early scholars of tafsir is that they give tafsir by example so that you can understand what's being referred to not that that is the only explanation or the only tafsir of that verse and others from amongst them as Imam al-Tabari said gave the example that when you have finished from your worldly chores and affairs from your worldly responsibilities the responsibilities of the dunya then turn to your lord in worship and he said that this is the statement of mujahid so Mujahid has more than one tafsir that he gave. What's important and what's interesting to look at here is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet that whatever it is that he's finished from, be the issues of the deen, whether that be fighting your enemies, whether that be prayer, whatever it may be, that actually what he should do, after, or be the issues of the dunya in terms of discharging his duties and responsibilities, then what the Prophet should do at the end is continue to worship his Lord. And that is in fact what you will see if you if we study and look at the life of the Prophet وسلم, that that is the reality of the life of the Prophet When wasn't he doing some form of ibadah? Right? Even to the hadith that you find in a Tirmidhi and other than a Tirmidhi and in a number of the collections of hadith where one of the scholars of the Tabi'een came to Aisha radiallahu anha and he said, O oh, 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 mother of the believers, describe for me how the Prophet وسلم, was at home. And in one narration that she said radiallahu anha, he was in the service of his family. Right? And in another wording, he was constantly doing house chores, doing what needs to be done in terms of fixing things and mending things and looking after his household affairs. So the Prophet didn't really come home and just chill and relax and say, you know, I've had a long, hard day and I need just time. But rather he would come and he would fulfill his other chores and responsibilities, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that's something which is very important to notice. And if the Prophet isn't doing that, he's dealing with issues of the Ummah. And if he's not doing that, he's, he's performing his personal worship, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If he's not doing that, then he's worshipping Allah through teaching and seeking knowledge and spreading knowledge and reading the Quran and so on and so forth. And so this command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this command of Allah Azzawajal, is something which the Prophet takes to heart and he does. And it is very closely linked to the final command that Allah gives, as we will see in verse number 8, in the last verse of this surah. And Imam al-Tabari concludes, rahimahullah ta'ala, and he says, and the strongest of those opinions, is that Allah is commanding his Prophet wasallam that whenever he finishes from something, whether it be from the affairs of this life or the next, that is preoccupying him, then he should preoccupy himself further, but only in the worship of his Lord furthermore. So if he's doing something from the affairs of the dunya, he turns to Allah's worship. And if he's finishing from something which is from the affairs of the akhirah, meaning it is worship in one way or another, 
then he should turn to worship Allah even more. And we see that clearly in the Sharia. You finish Salah, you make Adhkar. You finish your Adhkar, you make the Sunnah uh, prayers that you offer. You finish them and there are other prayers that you can offer throughout the day. right? And likewise, you know, in Hajj, you go from one right to another right to another right, one action to another action until you complete all of Hajj. And so this is the type of training that Allah wants us as believers to have. And that is the position that Imam Al-Tabari chose. So he, as you can see, took the generic view of all of those statements of the Salaf and he took from it the principle. And that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, should, uh, sh- uh, that is that Allah is commanding the Prophet وسلم, to busy himself in the worship of his Lord. Al-Imam ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, when you have finished from the affairs of the dunya and from those things which have preoccupied you and may have taken you away from worship, then turn back to the worship of your Lord and stand uh, stand worshipping your Lord and uh, and purify your intention and worship Him sincerely. Abu Hayyan in his tafsir gives a nice summary of this. He said, If you have finished from your... Uh, the different opinions that he found, Abu, Abu Hayyan mentions of, of the different examples that the Salaf gave. He said, if you have finished from the obligatory actions, then busy yourself with the voluntary actions. Or he said, if you have finished from the obligatory actions, then busy yourself with the night prayer. Or if you have finished from the affairs of the dunya, then busy yourself with worship. Or if you have finished yourself, if you have finished, uh, if you have finished from your salah, then busy yourself with dua. Right. And if you have finished from jihad, then then on fighting your enemies, then busy yourself in ibadah. Right. And those are the different statements that he mentions very nicely. One of the uh, final points that I want to mention to this before we conclude is a, a shadh reading of this verse and how it is important to understand uh, readings which are shadh, meaning that they are peculiar readings, and readings which are shadh and they're so peculiar that they're not based upon anything, but how some of the different groups may come and take them as a principle in their understanding of, of the religion which is incorrect. So, for example, this verse from Sab Ibn al-Arabi, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar of the Maliki Madhab, uh, and not the philosopher. This is Ibn al-Arabi al-Maliki, the famous scholar, the author of Hakam al-Quran, which is a book in which he takes the rulings of the Quran and he comments upon them from the Quran. And it is a type of uh, a type of tafsir in the sense that it specifically only refers to the tafsir of verses of Hakam and rulings that he deduces from the Quran. And each of the, the Madhabs have Tafasir like this. This is Ibn al-Arabi from the Maliki Madhab. He says, from amongst the people of Bid'ah are those people who read this verse as fa'ansib, fa'idha faragta fa'ansib, and they change the meaning. And they change the meaning instead of worship your Lord, fa'ansib means declare. What do they say that he should declare? That Allah is saying to the Prophet once you have finished worship, once you have finished, meaning from your uh, conveying your message and your risala and, and conveying your, your message to people, then declare your successor. Right? And those are the people who said, for example, that Ali radiallahu an should have been the successor of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And they used, they took the shad reading and they said that this is the correct meaning. And that is clearly incorrect, not only because it is a shad reading, not one that is read by any of the ten of the Qur'an, but also because it is something which is rejected in many other ways as well. But that's just something which I wanted to mention to you to make you aware that that is something which happens also in terms of certain tafsirs that you have to be aware of. Uh, the final verse, وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ farghab, And turn to your Lord for everything, which is the, the translation of uh, Professor Abdul Halim, Mufti Taqi, and turn 
and towards your your Lord turn with eagerness. Muhsin Khan and turn and to your Lord alone turn all your intentions and hopes and your invocations and Sahih International and to your Lord direct your longing. The word Arragba wa ila Rabbika Farghab. Arragba is to seek and long for something, to seek out and long for something. And what I said, as I mentioned a short while ago, these verses seven eight are very closely linked. In the first, Allah is speaking about the, affair, the affairs of the body, the physical act of worship. Worship your Lord, be that dua, be that whatever it may be, siyam or night prayer, or however it may be. And the second part to this, which is in verse number 8, is the issue of the heart, the state of the heart. That your heart should constantly be attached and longing to be closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To have a stronger connection to Allah azza wa And this was uh, the statement of Mujahid rahimahullah, make your intention and your longing for your Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned something similar. And he said in his tafsir that just as these people, meaning the disbelievers, their hearts are attached to their false gods and their idols, then likewise you, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, your heart should be attached and long for the one true God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are similar uh, narrations from, or similar statements from Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned something very nice. Uh, and he says that this verse is a command from Allah Azza wa Jal and a lesson not only for the Prophet but for his ummah, for his followers as well. And that is that their whole life should revolve around wanting to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, loving Allah Azza wa Jal, seeking different ways and means of gaining nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No matter how small that may seem, no matter how easy it may seem, no matter how insignificant it may seem. Each and every single waking moment, the believer is someone who to the very best of their human ability is trying to look at ways that will bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That may be through, through pure acts of worship like salah and dua, or it may be by helping others and through them you gain a nearness to Allah azza wa jal, like by giving sadaqah, by serving your parents, by looking after your children, by looking after your spouse, by being good to your neighbor and your guest and so on. Or it may be by speaking a good word or by doing something which lifts some oppression or harm from someone else, whatever it may be, whichever way it may be, to the extent that even your daily actions, if you can, you try to mold your intention in a way that they are something which turn into an act of worship. So I sleep because I want to have more strength to worship Allah. I eat to give me more energy to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I take a break and rest so that I can turn back to Allah azza wa with more vigor and enthusiasm and energy in my worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And that's the statement of some of the scholars of the past used to say that they would read certain books that weren't necessarily books of knowledge, just books that may be of stories and so on, because it would relax them and allow their mind to switch off for a moment so that they could come back then to reading the books of knowledge and so on. And Imam Ibn Qayyim Taala he says, because the people who seek are of three types. Those who long and seek something are of three types. Those who seek and long for Allah, number one. And number two, those who long and seek for what Allah has, meaning his reward. And the third are those who seek and long for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he said the one who truly loves Allah is the one who seeks and longs for him. And that is what the Prophet ﷺ did. And that is how every single act that he did becomes an act of worship. So it's not enough for the Prophet ﷺ that Allah has forgiven him. It's not enough that Allah gave him, has already given him the highest level of Jannah. 
he isn't working for the reward. He's not working for the good deeds. He's not working for Jannah per se. He's working for his love for Allah. And when you love some someone or something to that extent, then the rewards and everything are secondary. They're not material to you. Just as we, when we love our children, we don't look after them and help them and serve them and, and do things for them simply because we expect from them a return. That they will give us money or that they will, when they grow up, buy a house or buy us a car or whatever. We do it for the pure love of our children or maybe our parents or maybe our spouses. We do it for that pure love and because of that pure love, we can do it every day and we can do it at night and we can do it during the day and we can do it when we're tired and when we're sick and when we're busy. We will make that time and make that effort because it is done out of a place of pure love. And that is what Ibn Qayyim ta'ala is saying. The one who truly loves Allah Azza wa Jal, yes, he wants the reward and he has the intention for that reward. But even if he were to be guaranteed Jannah, he would still continue to do more. Just as those companions of the Prophet wasallam that were guaranteed Jannah, that Allah gave them the glad tidings of Jannah upon the tongue of his Prophet wasallam, they still continue to worship Allah. They still continue to do more and more good deeds. It wasn't enough for them that they had that guarantee because their actions and their work and their worship is not for the reward, but it is for their love for Allah. And that is what Ibn Qayyim Ta'ala says. And then he says Ta'ala, and the second type is a person who works for what Allah has, meaning his reward. And that person gets that reward. Allah will reward them for that. That person isn't deficient in terms of them fulfilling their obligations and getting that reward. But it is a lesser level, the level of difference between the mu'min and the muhsin, the one who has iman and the one who has ihsan, the one who turns to Allah and worships him for the love that he has for Allah and for the sweetness that he finds from that worship of Allah and seeking and drawing closer to him subhanahu wa ta'ala as opposed to someone who worships Allah because they know that it is an obligation that must be fulfilled and because of the fear of punishment that they have otherwise, right? Just like you know, many people have you know, the difference between a job and a passion. A job and a hobby and interest that you love. The first that you do because it's your duty, your responsibility. You do your job and you do it well and you get your check at the end of every month. But the second you do, even if no one pays you. The second you do, even if people tell you to stop or they try to tell you to stay away. The second you do, even if you are the one who has to spend money. Like the one, for example, and that's the difference also in knowledge, right? The people who seek knowledge and it means that they spend from their money and they give for the time because of the passion that they have as opposed to someone who learns because there's an exam, right? As a person, as opposed to someone who learns because maybe they want a qualification or they want some type of position. Those are the difference. There's a difference between the two. Both have done their job and inshallah both have their reward. But there is a level of difference in terms of the manner in which that it is done and therefore the level of reward that each one of them gets. And the third is clearly the one, as he mentions, the one who is raqib anillah, the one who longs for something other than what Allah has. They're looking for the dunya, they're looking for money, they're looking for fame, they're looking for comforts and the delights of the dunya or the desires of the dunya. Those people are the people who don't care about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala then concludes and he says, so whoever is the, their longing and their love is for Allah purely for him alone, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this person will suffice them from every worry and from every concern. And Allah Azza will give them his divine protection and care in all of their affairs. And he will protect them and save them even when they are unable to protect and save themselves. And that is what Allah Azza is commanding the Prophet to have. O Muhammad if you spend your time worshipping Allah 
and you have that longing and seeking for Allah جل, that pure love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then nothing can overcome you and no harm can, t- and can, can touch you and no worry or concern can reach you and that is what Allah جل, promises those people who follow in those footsteps of the Prophet وسلم, in this way as well and with that we come to the conclusion of this tafsir of Surah Al-Sharh and it is an amazing surah because it speaks these early surahs like Surah Al-Duha, like Surah Al-Sharh give these amazing principles to Allah, to the Prophet and to his ummah right, that this is how they should have uh, this, this is what they should have so anyway, let us inshallah take some of your questions and then inshallah we can conclude for tomorrow uh, just to let you know, a reminder once again Zamzami next week, so this is before our next QP lesson next Monday inshallah ta'ala 8 p.m. UK time and if you know anyone that's interested please give them the YouTube link at least so that they can follow and they can watch inshallah ta'ala and I think all of that is in the QP readings telegram group okay uh, Sumaira, what is the verse in Surah Al-Zukhruf? It's at the very end, the very end of Surah Al-Zukhruf وَهُوَ الَّذِي فِي السَّمَاءِ إِلَاهٌ وَفِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَاهٌ I don't have the uh, verse number in front of me but it is the very end of Surah Al-Zukhruf Okay, verse 84, Jazakallah Khair Ijazah in this context is a confirmation that a text has been conveyed to you by the teacher who gives you the Ijazah Yes, that's a more accurate, uh, more accurate uh, way of looking at this. And you know, a number of our teachers never used to give us ijazah. Many of the senior scholars of hadith that we studied with in, in Saudi Arabia, Medina and so on, didn't take ijazah and they didn't give ijazah. Because it's not something now that you need. It's not there to preserve the religion. It's not there. You know, a scholar isn't defined by the number of qualifications that they have or the initials after their name or, for example, the ijazahs that they hold. They're, they're known and recognized for the knowledge that they have and the understanding that they have that is attested to by others. And so that for that you don't need these types of papers and qualifications. But um, but yes, that is probably a more accurate thing that just to show that you have read, done a full reading with a teacher. And that's why one of the principles of the scholars in, in, in these ijazas is that you write it down accurately. So for example, if you had a verbal ijazah and just say you missed out of the three lessons, you missed the second one. You would say, I attended lesson one and lesson two. Or this part of the book, I missed the reading. To the extent you will find this in the ijazas, that they will say in the books of hadith that I read this book to my teacher up to such and such a place. Even in the readings of, uh, you know, if you read the Muta of Imam Malik, and I'm going to digress now slightly, but if you allow me to, in the Muta of Imam Malik, in one of the most famous, most common, uh, most common uh, narrations to us of Yahya al-Layfi, Imam Yahya al-Layfi narrates certain ahadith from the Muwatta of Imam Malik from his students to Imam Malik, not from Imam Malik directly because he missed a handful of ahadith, he didn't hear them from Imam Malik so when he came to narrate the work of Imam Malik from his integrity and his honesty was he narrates the hadith from his fellow student to his teacher not from the teacher directly because he never heard it and that is called in Arabic fault, what you miss when you miss something you write it down so scholars in the ijazit would say that I read the first half of Bukhari to my teacher and the other half he gave me a verbal transmission ijazah he just said okay that's fine that's enough and I will allow you to read the rest of it from me as an ijazah without hearing and reading it to me correctly or, or completely that's something which is very common and, and scholars would write this down and they would be exact in the number of hadith and so on and that's because the whole point of ijazah is that it's that same methodology of transmission of hadith and transmission of hadith is based on integrity, it's based on honesty, it's based on truthfulness 
and that's why you have narrators that are trustworthy and are trustworthy, narrators that are reliable and reliable. This is what it comes down to, right? This is what it's coming down to. And so the scholars, even though it's not longer the same type of thing, we're not trying to preserve the sunnah in that way, but it is the same methodology that the scholars have continued to use. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, okay. So in essence, uh, Sumaira says, in essence, once one has fulfilled one's worldly and deeny obligations, exert oneself by continuing to do ibadah, it's not once you have finished, it's as you are going along. Every time you finish one thing, turn back to ibadah, meaning every time you have the chance, go back to the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's not once you have finished, because that word once you have fulfilled, you never fulfill your deeny obligations completely or your worldly obligations completely. Each time you finish one, another one comes across, right? Whether that be from the deen or the dunya. Uh, what is the quote of Ibn Qayyim from? It is in his tafsir. So Ibn Qayyim doesn't actually have a tafsir. But what the scholars or some scholars did a few years back is that they went to all of his works and they took out all of his excerpts of, of tafsir, all of his statements of tafsir, and they combined them together. And it's known as his tafsir Ibn Qayyim. You will find it in there, but the actual uh, reference I think is in uh, is in one of his other works, which I don't remember now. But if you go back to his tafsir, you will find at least part of the statement there as well. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, you mentioned people giving the name of the Prophet would it, would it be appropriate to name a child with another Prophet's or companion's name other than the Prophet's name, meaning Uthman Muhammad or Musa Muhammad? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, generally in terms of names, it's, it's a chapter which is very easy going so long as the meaning has a good name. Uh, and it doesn't refer to anything which is shirk or something like that, it has a good name, uh, a good meaning rather, then it's something which is generally okay. And how you choose to do that uh, you know, is up to you. But generally the way that it would work is that you give the child its first name and its other names are taken from you and your parents before you, like a surname, right? Because it's there to establish lineage. So you don't just make up the whole child's name. But if, for example, you say Musa Muhammad, right? and then your name is, for example, Abdul Ghaffar, you say Musa Muhammad Abdul Ghaffar. Right? That's how it works. But you can you can do it in that way and Allah Azza knows best. Okay, so inshallah ta'ala we're going to conclude that Barakallahu Fikum and inshallah ta'ala I will see uh, for those of you that are on, on, on Monday, I will see you on, on Monday and then inshallah ta'ala for those of you that are not then inshallah ta'ala I will see you back on Tuesday. Barakallahu Fikum wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa 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 alayhi w